Welcome, listeners, to the Everlasting Stories podcast, presented by Sick Semper Serpent Books in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm your host, Michael Strand. Tonight, I am proud to present to you the fourth episode in the Luke Miller saga, this one titled Detective Luke Miller and the Demonic Dragon by D. Zane Davis. In the previous installment, Detective Luke Miller was kidnapped by a good-natured Sasquatch named Brona who needed his help in order to save the world from a dragon hell-bent on destroying humanity. Before he could do anything to avert the apocalypse, however, he was captured by security forces during a pitched battle with evil Sasquatches named Skookums, which separated him from his intelligent talking dog, Shelby, as well as his companion, Dr. Dahlia Harriet, the reincarnation of the goddess Freya. And, as if all of that wasn't bad enough, it turns out that that dragon, that apocalyptic dragon, well, it's awake. And boy, is it mad. As always, listeners, tonight's episode is brought to you by our subscribers over at patreon.com slash sixsemperserpent. There you can sign up to support this podcast at all kinds of levels. For a dollar, you can read the entire archive. For three dollars, you can get early access to new episodes of this podcast. And at higher levels, you can get all sorts of things, free books and other goodies from Six Emperor Serpent. It's a wonderful way to support independent artists. And to all the people who do subscribe and support us, Thank you so very much. We are truly enjoying this podcast, and we hope that you are too. Well, listeners, it's time to start the show, and so let's do that. This is Detective Luke Miller and the Demonic Dragon by D. Zane Davis. Half a mile beneath Minnesota's Misabi Range, Friendly Ferrite Company Operations Director Rich Duncan and Security Supervisor Mac Burnham dusted themselves off after an earthquake in Shaft E of their new taconite mine. With them, Dr. Gerard Delvaux, an elderly parapsychologist called to investigate unusual seismic phenomena, frantically scoured the newly fallen dust and rocks for an immense book he dropped during the Earth's convulsions. He's awake, the man muttered, checking beneath chunks of taconite. My God, he's awake. <laughs> the old coot's gone off his nut. 
Rich coughed. Smoke and powdered rock hanging thick in the air, reducing the white glare of the emergency lighting to a murky yellow haze. Come on, Delvo, the big man continued. Let's get out of here. <clears throat> well, we still can. Not without my book, the paranormal professor stated defiantly. It is our only hope. <clears throat> Damn your book, Rich roared, fed up with a person he'd been skeptical about from the start. I've had enough of your quackery. Die down here if you want, but I'm not gonna... The ground shook with calamitous intensity, cutting short the director's words. A deafening cacophony of tumbling stone and twisting steel roared through the tunnel as bus-sized hunks of rock fell from the ceiling and crashed to the floor. The ground cracked and fissured, wide enough such that a nearby skid loader disappeared into the crevasse. A multi-ton excavator near the cavern's terminus bounced up and down like a plastic plaything. Emergency lights flickered and then failed. After a few seconds, the chaos subsided. Jarring silence settled over the tunnel, now drowning in inky blackness. Mac? Rich wheezed into the oblivion. Delvo? An affirmative moan from Mac echoed through the abyss. I'm alive, too, Delvo croaked after a moment. And I found my book. If I could see you, Rich hissed, feeling his way into a standing position. I'd beat you to death with that blasted book. As if on cue, a pale green light bathed the ruined mine shaft in a dim glow. Across the shattered chamber, Rich beheld Delvaux clutching his folio. The bulbous-nosed bald man was crumpled near a niche between boulders that had, just seconds before, been open floor. His once-sharp mouse suit now clung to him damp with sweat, rumpled and coated with dust. In the lime-hued illumination, his glistening foreign clothes coupled with his oversized cranium made him resemble an alien in a 1950s sci-fi film. You have your blasted book, Rich spat at the presumed lunatic. Now let's get out of here, if we can get out of here, while the emergency lights last. Mac, can you walk? It's not emergency lighting, boss, the security director squeaked. What? Rich stepped into the open and turned to face the source of the luminosity. The dust had settled somewhat, making it clear that the brightness came not from bulbs, but from a pair of giant reptilian eyes, each at least three feet in diameter, visible through a massive aperture in the far wall. Rich's fear-frozen figure could have passed for a statue as the orb slowly blinked massive, vertical eyelids, momentarily darkening the room. Following the outer set, translucent, nictitating membranes retracted, allowing gold-flecked emerald irises to fully illuminate the chamber with chartreuse brilliance. Rich spotted back across the chamber, the little man quaking as he crouched beside a boulder. There came a low rumbling from the other side of the wall, not an earthquake, but the deep, slow vibration of living tissue— the growling of vocal cords the size of a sedan. A spring warulman. A voice as dark and deep as the earth uttered, 
shaking the tunnel like an aftershock. Gefin bin metodeskeft. Rich remained silent, transfixed. Arise, men of earth, Delvo translated hoarsely. Come, meet your doom. Rich stuttered. What is it? It? The deep voice boomed like a stick of dynamite detonating. Dragotch am I. Um, Dragotch? Rich repeated dumbly. Fool, you know not of me. The rock wall cracked and crumbled, sending boulders tumbling Rich's direction. He ducked behind the edifice, concealing Delvaux just in time to avoid the avalanche of rock. Amid the calamitous crashing, Rich heard Mac shout into his security radio. We've got an emergency code one in shaft E. I repeat, emergency code one in shaft E. Rich looked around the corner, horrified to see a crocodilian head the size of a locomotive enter the tunnel, its monstrous maw lined with razor-edged teeth as big as phone booths, nabbed the shrieking security chief and gnashed him into hamburger. The poor man's sickening screams echoed through the tunnel ages after he had been swallowed. Dragoch turned his head, the immense black diamonds of his pupils contracting as they focused on the operations manager and the parapsychologist cowering behind him. Oh, how I have missed the taste of flesh. Dragoch hissed, droplets of Mac's blood spattering rich as he spoke. Mortal, consider yourself lucky. Lucky? Rich squeaked. Lucky to be among the first to fill Dragotch's belly to become nourishment for the harbinger of the apocalypse. <laughs> Before Rich could even scream, Dragotch snapped him up, tossed him in the air, caught him in his canines, and chewed him into oblivion. While the dragon played with his food, Delvaux crawled through a nearby crevice the shaking had opened and ran as fast as his feeble legs would allow, the huge book clutched tightly to his breast. Fool, Dragoch hissed, blasting a jet of fire from beneath his forked tongue. The column of flame charged down the tunnel, literally hot on Delvaux's heels, At the other end, the old man reached the elevator, jumped inside, and slammed shut the steel door just as the inferno caught up. Desperately praying, the breathless doctor repeatedly slammed the upswitch, and though twisted from the dragon quakes, the tracks nonetheless allowed the elevator to rise slowly, with labored squeaking and creaking. Delvo would have breathed a sigh of relief had he not needed to pull off and stamp out his burning suit jacket. As the first fingers of dawn clawed over the horizon, the remnants of Friendly Ferrite's Mobile Security Threat Assessment Team, or MOSTAT, emerged from the forest. Though a score of soldiers had set out, a mere dozen had lived through a night of repeated assaults by Skookums, or malevolent Bigfoot, hell-bent on helping Dragoch destroy the world. Detective Luke Miller was among the survivors, 
captured in the early dawn hours of the morning as he and Freya parlayed with Brona, a benevolent Bigfoot leader. Their meeting had ended in a double ambush, first by Mostat and then by the Skookums. In the melee, Luke was separated from his companion, Dr. Dahlia Harriet, who is also the incarnation of Freya, goddess of love, beauty, and war, as well as the Vatir, a group of good big feet who serve as magical protectors of the North Woods. By the time the group had reached Friendly Ferrite's operations center parking lot at the entrance of the vast mining complex, not only had most of his heavily armed captors been dragged off screaming to their doom by skookums, but also a series of earthquakes had opened sinkholes and felled trees throughout the forest. The team approached the operations center, a squat, two-story office structure clad in limestone and steel set against a backdrop of skyscraping iron induration furnaces. The whole compound was eerily still, save for the repeated ghostly sound of warning sirens echoing across the mostly empty parking lot. Emergency beacons flashed red along the side of the edifice. There must be a problem with the mine, a Mostat member inferred aloud. More of those things, another soldier said, shuddering. No sooner had the words left the man's mouth when the earth convulsed and then roared. Luke and his captors turned toward the forest. A half a mile away, a mass of soil and trees erupted 200 feet upward into the early morning mist. The dirt plume darkened the sky before showering back to earth in a cascade of boulders and earthen clumps. Luke might have noticed these dirt clods smacking him in the face had the appearance of Dragoch not made him literally forget to breathe. The beast's immense wings battered the air as he emerged from the crater and took flight. The eddies of air from his massive leathery wings launched leaves, dust, and shattered branches for miles in every direction. As the dirt cloud settled, Luke could finally see the creature clearly, his head alone was the size of a diesel locomotive, poised at the end of a neck proportional to several boxcars. His body rivaled a container ship in scale. Each of his wings could cover even the largest soccer stadium. All over his body, crimson scales shimmered like the summer sun. The enormous crocodilian snout swung back and forth, scanning the landscape, his cat-like pupils dancing inside gigantic emerald irises as they searched the earth below. Behind him, a powerful, spiked tail flowed like a Chinese kite for more than half a mile. Spotting something in Luke's direction, the monster opened his jaws, revealing a mouthful of skiff-sized teeth. He shrieked, his cry sounding as if a snake and a hawk had a stadium-sized baby. He flicked his bat-like wings and shot through the air like a jet fighter, a stream of orange flame belching from his mouth, swathing the forest in fire. Black smoke poured from burning pines, darkening the sky into an artificial evening. Luke might have remained mesmerized with horror had a fusillade of friendly barks not broken his revelry. He looked across the parking lot to see Freya and his dog Shelby emerge from the woods. The pair spotted him and broke into a run, unfazed by the security guards. You know, I was a Marine in Afghanistan. 
a blocky guard smeared with blood and dirt announced to no one, his eyes locked on the dragon. Uh-huh, that's for sure, a lanky soldier agreed, his eyes wide as dinner plates. I was a beat cop on the south side of Chicago, and you know what? I think I'll go back. He punctuated his sentiment by dropping his carbine and sprinting away. Before the gun had even landed, the man was about halfway to a cluster of parked cars. Another soldier muttered, You know I'm not getting paid enough for this, before similarly turning tail and running. Several others nodded in agreement and made for their vehicles, parked at the other end of the lot in front of the office building. By the time Freya and Shelby had arrived, only Luke and the commander remained in the parking lot, surrounded by muddy footprints and empty rifles. Look, uh, no hard feelings, the commander said as she tossed aside her own carbine. I can give you two a ride if we hurry. You know, we might just escape that, that dragon, darling, Freya finished. Thank you, but we have other plans. Suit yourself, the officer replied skeptically, and, uh, Godspeed. Her parting manner contained a visible measure of respect for the strange duo who, alone, seemed to know what was going on. I grant you equal swiftness, Freya replied. The officer nodded with a perplexed look before following her comrades. Luke noticed that she seemed to move a great deal faster than even a fit soldier ought to be capable. Apparently, Freya actually meant what she had said when she had granted the woman the speed of a god. Luke, Freya began hurriedly, I know Brona calling you my consort troubled you, but please know you're much more than that. What am I, then? the detective pressed. I, well, I don't know yet, the goddess answered, her smile sweet as wildflower honey. But I'm certain there's something special between us. Though that doesn't mean you have to fight on my behalf. If you desire, I'll use my flying cloak to take us away from here. But who will defeat Dragach? Luke asked, heartened at being called special. That isn't your problem, darling, Freya attempted to assure him. Oh, but it is my problem, though, isn't it? Luke rebutted, seeing through her faux flippancy. I have to kill him, but not for you, for the human race. The goddess gazed admiringly into the detective's hazel eyes, and then she nodded affirmatively. But, you know, I can't do it alone, Luke added. We need help. Then I shall be your consort, Freya decided, grabbing the detective, turning him away from her, and placing her raven feather cloak around his shoulders. Take my cloak and fly back to the grotto. Brona should be there. But, but how do I... Luke began as the goddess fastened her flying cloak of raven's feathers around his shoulders. Just think of how and where you want to fly. It's that simple. And what about you? Luke asked, turning to face her. I'll keep the dragon occupied, she replied breathing over her shoulder, unsheathing her sword, and offering it to Luke. Take Lufreden. It's useless against the dragon, but it'll help you if any skookums intercept you. But what about Shelby? Luke pressed. R I to the grotto run! 
his brave mutt announced in her telepathic doggy voice. I'll run and run and run and run. Ruff. All right, Luke began. Before he could continue his thought, Freya took his face in her palms and pressed her lips into his, forceful at first, and then turning tender. The horror surrounding them vanished for a moment that felt like a millennium. She pulled away finally and stared at him intensely, bathing him in the vast, quiet pools of her cerulean irises. Then her delicate features hardened as she commanded, Now, Luke, you must go. As Dragoch torched his way toward them, the detective closed his eyes and imagined himself as a missile soaring into space. He shot immediately into the air with alarming suddenness, opening his eyes just in time to catch an action-figure-sized Freya confront an elephant-sized Dragoch. Both then vanished beneath a cottony layer of clouds. Realizing he was about to enter orbit, the detective stopped his ascent. Despite his fear of heights, Luke momentarily marveled at the magic that had propelled him so naturally into the stratosphere. The frigid, high-altitude air burned his skin, and a high-pitched whine burned his ears. He turned to discover the nose of a passenger jet heading straight towards him. His reverie broken, he pictured the grotto and dropped towards the ground at terminal velocity, just milliseconds before the plane pulverized him. Luke punched a hole through the clouds again at lightning speed. Afraid that too rapid a re-entry might make him into a meteorite, he imagined flying slow and level over the tops of the trees. As the uppermost leaves came within reach, his flight pattern did just as he hoped. The detective would have sighed with relief and pride at his mastery of the cloak had a squad of skookums not immediately intercepted him by air. A horrifying squawk accompanied war cries from a calamitous cavalry of vile, evil sasquatches riding monstrous vultures. The warriors brandished lances with blades like rusty corkscrews as they spurred their mounts towards the detective. Before they could skewer him, however, Luke managed to dip beneath the beasts in a low barrel roll, swinging Freya's sword as he twisted under them like the blade of a broken propeller. As Luke whirled, Lufraden struck a vulture's throat. The bird squawked and died in midair, disintegrating into dust. Its skookum rider fell free as its mount died, just managing to snag Freya's cloak with its claws as it flailed into nothingness. The impact stopped Luke spinning, leaving him facing the clouds, with the creature dangling from the bottom edge of the cloak. The creature's weight caused the cloak's golden clasp to dig into the detective's throat, choking him. Quickly, Luke attempted to spin and swing the sword at his assailant, but this movement only succeeded in unfastening the clasp, which sent both Skookum and the cloak tumbling to the forest below. Luke crashed through the branches of several tightly clustered firs. They slowed his descent but knocked Lufraden out of his hand. The sword rung as it bounced through the boughs to the dark forest floor below, making a dull thud as it landed amid a mat of fallen pine needles beneath him. A lace on Luke's left boot snagged a branch as he neared the ground, 
painfully stopping his descent and leaving the detective hanging nearly ten feet in the air, slowly rotating. Motion sick and with blood rushing to his head, Luke heard a snap and a sharp hiss. Looking down, or rather up, Luke spied the skookum quickly descending through the branches towards him. The beast deftly hopped bow to bow until he paused an arm's length across from Luke's throat. Yafwekdol, the monster cursed in Old English, drawing its arm back to administer the killing blow. As the skookum ordered Luke to die, there was a sharp whoosh sound, followed by a satisfying thud. The monster's voice wheezed into silence. Its claws froze midair and it tottered on the branch for a second before falling, face first, towards the forest floor. As the monster disintegrated in death, Luke spotted the shaft of an ebony arrow sticking out of its back. Looking toward the ground, Luke beheld a Bigfoot wielding a powerful bow of polished wood in her left hand. Luke sighed in relief. It was Brona. Since they'd last met, the Vatier had clearly dressed for battle. Covering her torso was a coat of mail woven from woody vines. Atop this, she wore a breastplate, pauldrons, and tassets sewn together from pieces of hardened leather and birch bark. Around her neck hung a goret of silver shaped like a swooping owl. On her head shone a Saxon-style helm, also made of silver, with nasal and cheek pieces shaped to match the owl motif. A scimitar with an elk antler hilt hung, sheathed at her side, alongside a quiver of thick black arrows on her back. As Luke opened his mouth, the Bigfoot drew and knocked another arrow, aiming it directly his way. The detective closed his eyes, thinking the disappointed demon had decided to do away with him. He heard the projectile whoosh towards him. He felt his body then drop and opened his eyes to see the truncated tip of his shoelace flapping freely in the air as he fell. Brona's arrow had cut him loose, but... With a headfirst fall from that height, he was still a goner. He braced for impact. Instead of the forest floor, however, Luke's body landed in a warm, furry basket. Opening his eyes, he found himself in the massive arms of the tall, black-haired Bigfoot he remembered to be named Bjornfirth. Luke's facial expression must have hardly concealed his surprise. Did you think me so spiteful? Brona laughed as Bjornfirth set the dizzy detective on his feet. I, Luke stuttered, still woozy from his flight and fall. For if it were so, the Bigfoot interrupted, apparently uninterested in his answer, you would be forgiven. It seems that I, too, misjudged. Not only have you returned... It appears Freya Vanadis has entrusted you with her cloak and with this. As Luke regained his balance and composure, he turned to see Brona holding Freya's sword out to him. No matter her faults, Brona continued, 
Freya would not entrust a mere consort with Rufraden. Well, Luke attempted to explain. Save the details, Brona again interrupted. Shelby told us everything. Now come, we have little time. So Shelby safe? Luke asked, a wave of positivity engulfing him. She's in the grotto, Brona answered with assurance. Wow, she really is fast, the detective announced. Almost divinely so, Brona replied suspiciously, suggesting Freya may have literally speeded Shelby on her journey. But you can congratulate her in person. Come. What about the cloak? Luke pressed. It was snatched by a skookum. Brona explained, growing exasperated at the delay. They love such trophies. Luckily, even though we can no longer employ its magic, neither can they. Their spirits are too twisted to use the cloak. Okay, Luke began, but how can we fight an aerial foe without it? Brona smiled, put two fingers to her lips, and whistled three shrill blasts. For a second, nothing happened. And then Luke felt a faint stirring of air. He whirled around, brandishing his sword, fearing they'd been ambushed by Skookum paratroopers. Instead, a massive barn owl touched down in front of him in near silence. Though the creature appeared identical to a normal barn owl in every respect, this snowy raptor nearly matched Bjorn first ten-foot stature, towering over Brona and certainly belittling Luke's meager six feet. Before the detective could fully appreciate its appearance, two more of the immense birds, a great horned and a screech owl, landed silently behind the first. Despite their arrival, the barn owl continued to fix its black, platter-sized eyes upon Luke, turning its head nearly ninety degrees to one side to scrutinize him before finally returning its countenance to the proper orientation. Basu, Luke Miller, it hooted in an airy voice, its razor-edged beak clacking with unintentional menace. Nimmin widam. Um... Luke began, trying to comprehend the unfamiliar speech. She says, Hello, pleased to meet you in Ojibwe, Bjorn Firth interrupted, translating for the dumbfounded detective. Luke, this is a whirlwind. She is chieftain of the Great Owls. They have come to provide a safe transport to the grotto. And not a moment too soon, Brona added. Luke, Jump on to Thunderer, the screech owl there. Hurry, before any more skookums come looking for you. Luke slipped Lufraden into his belt and approached the giant eastern screech owl. Um, Bazoo, he announced, hoping he'd chosen the right word. Ah, Anin, the owl clacked in warm greeting. As Luke smiled with relief that he hadn't accidentally offended a creature easily capable of eating him for dinner, Thunderer lowered his chest to the ground. Somewhat reluctantly, but eager to avoid another skookum assault, Luke jumped onto the owl's back, sinking deep into the pillowy feathers. Feeling around, he found and gripped the roots of Thunderer's wings. 
When the detective's grasp felt secure, the gigantic raptor stood up and shot into the air, unfurling wings large enough to lift a single-engine airplane. Before them, the forest seemed stated and unspoiled. However, as Luke looked over his shoulder, he caught a glimpse of the apocalypse unfolding behind. Surrounded by a swarm of skookums, Dragoch had landed atop Friendly Ferrite's induration furnaces and was shredding the concrete and steel structures as though they were made of styrofoam. Every inch of earth around him was ablaze. Even the rock and metal burned white-hot. As Luke watched, a pair of F-22 fighter jets darted into view. The foremost fighter flew in close and unleashed a stream of shells from its autocannon. The rounds sparked against Dragoch's scales as they bounced off like rubber balls. Unfazed, the dragon swiped at the plane, the blow sent the aircraft into a spin as its left wing erupted in flame. As the first jet vanished into the burning forest below, the second fighter came roaring from the opposite direction. Approaching the dragon, it fired what looked like two burning matchsticks before rolling up and out of reach. The missiles were expertly aimed at the dragon's hot belly, and both hit their mark, exploding in tandem against Dragoch's side in brilliant gouts of fire and quick, concussive booms. Luke's heart leapt, thinking that mechanized warfare might will out against the ancient creature. Quickly, his hopes fell as the demon, seemingly uninjured, shrieked with irritation and shot a stream of flame after the jet. The plume of flame caught the F-22 in the engine intakes and must have ignited its fuel tanks as it almost instantly exploded, leaving behind nothing but a ball of orange fire and white smoke. Before Luke could witness further carnage, his owl dipped into the trees. Aren't we vulnerable here? Luke inquired, as they dismounted in the grotto where they had been ambushed the previous night. Yes, Brona replied, stepping towards a tumbling wall of jigsaw-jagged rock. She reached towards one particularly large boulder and spoke softly. Unlid. An orb of blue light flashed between her palms and the rock. The ground rumbled, making Luke fear another earthquake. Instead, the boulder slid inward, as if on hinges, leaving a circular opening just wide enough for a crouching Bigfoot to walk through. Luke could pass without ducking. We will be safe in here, Brona announced, gesturing to the doorway. Following her, Luke, Bjornfirth, and the three owls crawled into the cave. The door closed behind them with a thud, exchanging daylight for golden artificial illumination. Expecting a damp, cramped cellar, Luke was amazed to descend a long stone stairway into a room some 300 feet square and 50 feet high. The smooth, gray-quake walls of the hidden chamber were hung with radiant tapestries woven from living vines and flowers, each depicting deer, moose, and other North Shore fauna. Light came from sconces formed by living roots, cradling quartz jars filled with fireflies. Massive benches of half-sawn pine logs spanned most of the floor. 
Seated behind a huge table at the opposite end of the chamber were the other Vatir elders, Ethelwald, Hjordrin, and Egolith. Sitting on the table was the Vatir historian, Mishike, the great tortoise. Shelby lay panting beneath the table, her scruffy tail wagging in broad, fast half-circles. Welcome to the Vattersdale, Hall of the Vatir, the shortest, widest Bigfoot named Athelwald announced. So good that you have returned, Luke Miller. Too bad that you have come too late. There is yet time, Brona shot back. Nay, the fluffy, tall, blonde Sasquatch, Hirodrin, answered. You've seen for yourself. Dragotch is twice the size and thrice the potency we predicted. We have no weapon powerful enough to fell him. But if we join together, Luke interjected. No more will come, the curly Bigfoot Egolith answered sadly. At this late hour, even those loyal to the council see no point in fighting. They wish to cherish their final days in this world before the dragon renders us all into ash. Is this true, Mishike? Brona pressed. True indeed, she began gravely. When Dragach was imprisoned a millennium ago, he was but a pup, and even then he had already grown so powerful that merely entombing him took the combined powers of the Vatia, the Hopewell shamans, and the Celtic steel lent by Madoc of Wales, all but a handful of those who fought mortal and immortal alike died in the attempt, their knowledge of magic dying with them. Hmm. However, there is something we can do, Ethelwald added. What? Brona inquired with tenuous hope. The council can teleport Luke Miller home so that he can spend the last moments with his loved ones, Rodwin explained. No, Luke pronounced, shaking his head. That can't be it. We live in the age of nuclear missiles, for cripe's sake. Oh, I suspect those atomic weapons have had a hand in the dragon's unprecedented power, Bjornfirth countered. Even without the attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, how much pain has the human desire for nuclear domination caused? Such suffering has made rich fodder for Dragach. But there has to be a way, Luke demanded. There's always a way. What about Freya? She cannot interfere, Rodwin pronounced definitively. Even if she could summon all of her immortal powers in her mortal body, divine law forbids such gross intervention into human affairs. Odin would halt her. Then why did you bother to bring us here in the first place? Luke lashed out. How are the Vatier guardians of the natural world if you can't stop it from being annihilated? How dare you? Brona thundered. 
terrifying the detective into silence. The Bigfoot opened her mouth to continue berating his insolence, but the realization of her own powerlessness left the words lifeless on her tongue. Her anger faded as rapidly as it had appeared. I'm sorry, Luke squeaked. I just... Brona waved away the apology, plopping herself on one of the benches, pulling off her helm, and tossing it, clattering to the floor. Luke turned to the seated counselors, his gaze begging for consolation. Finding none, the detective plopped onto a bench beside Brona and put his head in his hands. Shelby whimpered and trotted up to his side. As he put a hand on her shaggy head, he felt a hand on his shoulder, a human hand. Luke gasped as he turned around and shouted, Freya! before embracing and kissing her on the lips. Until that moment, the detective hadn't realized just how worried he'd been about her. Happily surprised herself, the goddess wrapped her arms around Luke and squeezed him tightly. Ah, Vanadis, Ethelwald announced as the humans completed their kiss. Bring you any news, the dragon? We exchanged salvos near the mining office. Freya turned and explained in a hoarse voice. Since I lent my cloak and sword to Luke, I cast the most powerful halting hex my human incarnation can intone. Neither it nor a dozen other divine conjurations could even momentarily contain the beast. When I finally fled, he headed toward the processing plant. I doubt dismantling those furnaces will please him for long, though. As she spoke, the joyful surprise of her arrival wore off enough for Luke to notice that the dragon had done a real number on the goddess. Freya looked haggard and exhausted. Soot streaked her cheeks while sweat glistened on her brow. Her designer t-shirt and capris hung limply from her body, slashed and scorched, exposing bloody swaths of thigh and midriff in several places, gashes, bruises, and burns covered every inch of her exposed skin. Holy shit, he started, pressing a hand to one of her freely bleeding cuts. I'll be fine, she assured. But as you can see, this body can barely stall the dragon. And if I were to shake off my flesh-bound form to take on Dragoch unencumbered, well, Odin would intervene, wouldn't he? Luke finished. And... Likely chain me in hell for ten thousand years, she added with a dark matter-of-factness. So, what do we do? Freya sat down next to him. She took his cheek in her palm and pressed her lips into his. What felt like hours later, she pulled away and gazed deep into his hazel eyes. I think that we should go home, Luke, she began, tears ringing her cerulean irises, so that you can be with your family, and perhaps, if you like, you and I could spend our final moments in this world together. Hmm, consort indeed, Egolith muttered with quiet condescension. Can it, you overgrown orangutan? Freya spat back. All right, Luke decided aloud, hoping to calm the tension. Let's just go before we're all at each other's throats. We might as well part as friends. Indeed, Luke Miller, Brona chimed in with a forlorn smile. 
Luke, Freya, and Shelby stood surrounded by the six Vatier, their hands joined in a circle. The big feet chanted the strange phenomes of an invocation that would send their guests home. A faint breeze stirred inside the Vattersdale. Farewell, Luke Miller, Brona announced as the wind picked up, signaling that they would shortly be teleported back to St. Paul. If only... Counselors, an unfamiliar voice interrupted, echoing through the chamber. The chanting stopped, and the air went still. The group turned towards the stairwell to behold a pair of armored Vettir scouts and their owls standing on either side of an elderly bald man in charred trousers and filthy shirt sleeves, clutching a battered leather book. The same voice continued from the mouth of a salt-and-peppered scout, her hand holding the bridle of a snowy owl. We found this man stumbling through the woods, mumbling conjurations to himself in Anglo-Saxon. After a second, Freya's voice shouted in shock, Gerard Delvaux? It's Dr... The old man began tiredly before suddenly recognizing her. Oh, Dr. Harriet, it's you. You know this guy? Luke asked, intrigued but too exhausted to be shocked. This so-called doctor of divination and parapsychology, Freya began, pointing an accusatory finger and marching towards the man, is a zealous, secretive, and cutthroat collector of paranormal paraphernalia, who moonlights as some sort of mystic. In my archaeology work, we've crossed paths many times. And locked horns. Delvaux added, enjoying Freya's spirited introduction. Indeed, Freya hissed in the old man's face. You see, were it not for me, who knows how many priceless artifacts would have been spirited away to Dr. Delvaux's private collection, or sold on the black market, instead of being studied by museum experts for the benefit of humanity. <laughs> you mean like the shards of Nagling? Delvaux chuckled, referencing the fragments of Beowulf's sword, which Freya had stolen to keep safe from being used to take over the world. I'm honestly surprised it wasn't you who tried to steal them, Freya shot back. Not that they were mine to steal in the first place. I was merely keeping them safe on the museum's behalf. Not safe enough, apparently. <laughs> the mystic laughed without humor. Well, Delvo, what brings you here? Freya demanded, changing the subject, not wanting Delvo to learn any more than she might have already given away. Did you think you could make a dime selling dragon scales? I was called in as a consultant. The parapsychologist replied, lifting his head and pulling his shoulders back. The security director for Friendly Ferrite asked me to investigate seismic phenomena in the mine. You see, the unfortunately late Mac Burnham had a profound interest in the paranormal. We met at a series of lectures I gave at UMD a few years ago. At that time, Mac employed me to expel a poltergeist from his home— 
after this experience, he knew I could discern the quake's real cause, and of course I did, and tried my best to mollify the monster. With this, he held out the book he'd been clasping to his chest. Upon seeing it, an excited tempest erupted in Freya's irises. Is that the Northumbrian manuscript of the Missal of Milburga? Delvo announced proudly. Without warning, Freya snatched the book with her left hand and slapped the doctor hard across the face with her right. The frail, injured old man collapsed to the ground in a heap. You son of a bitch, she seethed. You had absolutely no right to keep a text of this power to yourself. What is it? Luke asked. Detecting Freya's reaction was caused by a little more than just an old rivalry. Um, uh, Saint uh, Milberga, a seventh century Marcian abbess, was the greatest sorcerer to ever live. Mishike interrupted as Freya lugged the massive codex across the room and plunked it on the table in front of the tortoise historian. In her missal here, she compiled everything she knew. Freya threw open the thick cowhide cover and began thumbing through worn, moldy parchment pages. Each was filled with a myriad of strange glyphs and diagrams crafted in oxidized flaking ink. Milberger made seven copies, the tortoise continued as the goddess skimmed. One for each kingdom of Anglo-Saxon Britain, Mercia, East Anglia, Northumbria, Wessex, Essex, Sussex, and Kent. Fires claimed the first two copies before the Norman conquest. Two more were deliberately destroyed in the 13th century after being classified witchcraft by the Holy See. Another two were destroyed during Henry VIII's suppression of the monasteries in the 1530s. In 1536, a brave Benedictine smuggled the last surviving copy from the Lindisframe Priory in Northumbria to a community of gravefarers in Edinburgh. There, it was kept safe under the reign of Scotland's King James V. But when that priory was destroyed by the Protestant reformists in 1559, the missile was again saved by the layman Clyde Hamilton, and the book was last mentioned in the still extant diary of his great-great-grandson. Nevin, in an entry dated 1637. Mashika's account is flawlessly comprehensive, Freya pronounced as the tortoise finished her tale. Officially, the missile was presumed destroyed during the occupation of Edinburgh by Oliver Cromwell's army in the 1650s. Of course, stories of it secretly surviving surface every few years, 
especially after the birth of internet forums like Read That, but most scholars presumed that they were mere myths originally concocted by 19th-century pseudo-sorcerers, faux cultists, I call them. Most scholars, Delvo hollered arrogantly from across the room, but not all. He heaved himself up off the floor with a groan and began limping towards them as he continued. My research revealed the book had escaped destruction by being ferried away to Maryland. Following this lead, I found the missile in South Dakota in 1985, in the possession of an elderly descendant of Clyde Hamilton. I convinced the woman to will me the text upon her death. When she died two years later, the missile became mine. Most impressive, Luke replied, unimpressed. But what good is it to us? Milberger's anthology contained the definitive treatise on dragon-slaying, Freya preempted. She consulted the last living druids and Celt rim-killers, recording and generating a priceless collection of spells found nowhere else since the Dark Ages. In fact, it's believed that Milberger killed Britain's last dragon herself. The goddess pointed to a particularly ornate page. Oh, here it is. I found it. Oh, praise Odin, it's all here. I could have told you that, Delvo replied condescendingly, finally reaching the table. And even I couldn't get them to work. Without my expertise, they'll be little more than gibberish to you. You read this? Freya asked, pointing to a string of Anglo-Saxon characters. Delvaux nodded. No wonder it didn't work. Freya smiled wolfishly. Milberger wouldn't record such strong spells in the common tongue. Delvaux appeared vexed. The goddess held her hand over the page, closed her eyes, and whispered a string of strange syllables. As she spoke, the parchment began to glow a soft blue. When her recitation stopped, the luminescence faded, leaving shimmering lines of cerulean runes all over the page. How did you... Delvo stuttered in astonishment. There's more to me than meets the eye, doctor the goddess answered smugly before bending down to read the strange symbols. If a sky-winger best thine hall troop, Freya translated, thou must forge the France of Fremaux. So France is Anglo-Saxon for javelin, a throwing spear, and Fremaux, mm, also known as Thrythe, was the merciless warrior queen of King Offa of Angle, legendary ancestor of the Mercian monarchs. Well, it wouldn't be the first time we've made a mythical weapon, Luke interjected, recalling their misadventures with Beowulf's sword with a mix of dread and optimism. Oh, dear Luke, reforging Nagling will seem like making a pinecone bird feeder when compared to... Completing this spear, Freya replied solemnly. According to Milberger, the only substance hard enough to pierce the armor of a rim like Dragoch is a tooth from the dragon itself. 
And just how are we supposed to acquire one of Dragoch's teeth? Brona pressed in disbelief. It says here that a dragon's fangs grow constantly like those of a crocodile, Freya read. If we can't wait for one to fall out on its own, we must taunt the beast into biting something adamantine, like solid stone or iron, until one is pried out or broken off. Oh, great, easy enough, Luke replied sarcastically. And then what? Well, using these incantations, Freya answered, we forge a spearhead from the fang and mount it on a shaft of ash and steel, stout enough to penetrate the fire drake's armor, but light enough to fly fast and true. And to this shaft we must tie seven enchanted raven's feathers while uttering this spell to increase the javelin's velocity a thousandfold. Finally, we take the remains of the dragon's tooth, not used for the blade, and grind them into a fine powder. When it comes time for the stout man-at-arms, that's you, Luke, to hurl Fremaux's France at the harrowed heart, he must burn the fang powder while speaking this enchantment here to create a translucent sphere that will encapsulate and shield the warrior from the flames. Translucent sphere, Luke pondered, sounds like um, some kind of force field. Like a fireproof bubble. In essence, yes, Freya replied. Though I do see a problem. Only one, Delvo interjected incredulously. Freya ignored the mystic and continued. The enchanted ravens were hunted to extinction in the 14th century. Today, there's only one source of such feathers. You mean, Luke asked, aware that he wouldn't like the answer. Yes, we need to retrieve my flying cloak. The detective nodded thoughtfully and then turned to Whirlwind and Thunderer, who roosted on a bench in the corner, preening their feathers. When Luke called them by name, they looked up, their already immense irises doubling in size. Great owls, can you help us catch a thieving skookum? Ayah, Whirlwind hooted loudly. This means yes. Brona translated. Luke turned back to Freya and nodded optimistically. Well, this is all very well and good, Ethelwald interrupted. But how do you expect to keep Dragot from annihilating existence while you find and assemble such a weapon? Brona, Luke turned to his ferny comrade. If you spread the word that Freya and I have returned with a plan... Do you think a few loyal Vettir might come to help to stall the dragon? Not if they're merely lambs heading to their own slaughter, Brona replied frankly. What if... Wait, Delvo interrupted, realizing something. We've all seen Dragoch's teeth. They're each the size of a refrigerator. If we manage to get one, we can make enough of that powder to shield an army. We, Freya barked. If you think Vanadis, Brona interrupted, Delvo has a point. 
Dragoch's teeth are far bigger than even Milberga could have imagined. If these orbs can give our warriors at least some degree of protection to make their fight more worthwhile, a few may yet rally to our cause. Do not allow your anger to cloud your judgment of the doctor's ability as mine did Luke's. The goddess took a deep breath and nodded. You're right. Ramilda, Brona called to one of the Bigfoot scouts, still stationed by the entrance. Summon Slenderbranch, the great chickadee senator of the songbirds. We need his people to relay a message across the north woods. The Bigfoot nodded and departed with her owl. How many will come? Freya asked. Few, if any, Brona replied gravely. But it's all we can do. All right, the goddess replied. I need to clean myself up. While word spreads, Luke and I, we need to visit an old friend. Who? Luke asked, confused. Oh, you'll see. Who would have thought Bromere would have a summer home near the North Shore? Luke mused as he, Freya, Whirlwind, and Thunderer stood on the doorstep of a cylindrical cottage of thatch and stone. The detective had unknowingly met the armorer of the gods once before. The dwarf had been disguised as a clown at Luke's daughter's birthday party, so he could sneak the detective a sword designed as a balloon animal. Let's just hope he's willing to help, the goddess spoke, as she knocked on an age-darkened oak door two-thirds her height. Who's there? bellowed a gravelly voice from behind the door. Freya Vanitas and Luke Miller. The goddess chimed in a voice like silver bells. A viewport shunked open, and a pair of exceedingly round auburn eyes peered up at them, and then the slot clunked shut. The door flew inward, and a four-foot-tall, man-like creature, as round as he was tall, beamed at the visitors. Oh, hello, my lady. Hello, my lord, the little man's gruff voice announced, his arms extended, and his knee-length, slate-colored beard wagging. Come on in, come in, before them skookums get ya. The visitors entered the unexpectedly vast interior of the hut. Clearly, a camouflaging spell made it merely appear modest on the outside. An assortment of root vegetables hung in woven grass baskets from the rough-hewn beams supporting the roof. Alongside cast-iron pots and pans and cured meats covered in powdery white mold, carpets of thick wool woven into multi-hued rose-mauling patterns covered the floor, while the log walls seemed to undulate with intricate Norse runes and carvings. In the far corner, the armorer's forge occupied a full third of the cottage. Dying coals glowed from the mouth of a floor-to-ceiling furnace formed from granite blocks, an anvil as black and immense as a Newfoundland dog slept before it, bolted to a massive weathered stump. Around the stump's circumference, dozens of tongs and pliers hung from hooks screwed into the bark. To the right of the anvil stood a black leather bellows, its air chamber vast enough to kennel a pair of the aforementioned canines. The armorer's gauntlets, an apron of greasy, singed, 
rough side-out leather hung from the bellows' age-polished handle. Romir himself could have fit inside the heat-darkened oak barrel of quenching oil on the anvil's left. From the ceiling beams above the anvil hung at least a hundred hammers of various sizes, along with files of every conceivable size and shape. On the forge's far left, an enormous trendle-powered grinding wheel loomed, with an assortment of more files and sharpening stones hanging from wooden pegs on the wall behind it. On the forge's far right, next to the bellows, stood a long workbench of scarred, paint-splotched wood, an array of chisels, planes, even more files, sanding blocks, saws, and clamps arranged in precisely made cubbies behind it. From drawers and shelves beneath the workbench peeked diverse bits of cloth, leather, wire, and thread, materials for grips, handles, lining, and trim for any form of weapon or armor. A stack of uniformly split firewood towered at the workbench's far end, and in every corner or crevice not occupied by the endless array of tools, various lumps, Bricks, cylinders, sheets, and rods of raw steel were neatly stacked on the floor, leaned against the wall, or strung across the rafters. Bromir waved the humans towards an arrangement of couches upholstered in sumptuous fabric. He offered the owls a perch in the rafters, which they accepted with a grateful squawk. Can I get you some tea, or perhaps something a bit stronger? the armorer asked with a crinkled wink. Oh, a nip of brandy would be lovely. Thank you, Freya replied. Well, I'm right chuffed to see guests in times such as these, the dwarf declaimed as he waddled to the rough-hewn stone hearth forming his kitchen. Um, but methinks you've come on more than just a social call. As a matter of fact... I guess you're planning to fight that dragon. His visitors remained mum, so he continued whilst pulling a dusty earthenware decanter from the shelf above the mantel. Oh, I beg your pardon, but methinks it's a fool's errand that even me best battle wear would be not much help against a foe like that dragon. Aye. To be sure, dragon fire'll come for us all now. Tis just a matter of time. Might as well enjoy our final days in good company, such as yours. He pulled the cork from the brandy decanter with a pluke and filled two tumblers. You're too humble, Freya replied warmly, as the armorer replaced the brandy vessel and turned towards her. And too kind. His grin revealed a jagged assortment of crooked, tobacco-stained teeth. The dwarf toddled over, carrying the curious tumblers. The cups were formed from two halves of polished steel, joined by a line of neat, tiny rivets, clearly a whimsical expression of his metallurgical skill. He handed one to the goddess and flopped himself into an armchair opposite his guests, his face, visible beneath a pine-green arming cap, was covered in pocked, leathery skin. He had an immense, scarred, bulbous nose and keen, twinkling eyes. The rest of him, save for the beard, was covered in a knee-length tunic of the same color as his cap, secured at the waist by a honey-colored belt as wide as his massive, booted feet were long. 
However, Freya continued, even if such modest self-deprecation of your abilities was well-deserved, which it is of course not, Luke and I, well, we have a plan. Oh, do tell, the dwarf urged, stroking his beard with gnarled fingers, like stunted carrots grown too close together. Aye, tis quite a stratagem, Bromir announced upon hearing the conclusion of Luke and Freya's plot to defeat Dragoch. And I supposed you'll be wanting old Bromir to make you this supernatural spear. Indeed, Freya pronounced. And will you? Luke pressed. Nah, the dwarf replied frankly. Tis clever, but tis still a fool's errand. I dunna see why I should spend me last mortal moments sweating by the forge when I've got fine tobacco and brandy to pass me time. But you're an immortal like me, Freya rebutted. We're not here to be bon vivant. We're here to help humanity. Oh, don't you be taking that tone with me, milady, the dwarf replied disapprovingly. Mortal misguidance made this mess. There's no more an immortal like me nor you can do for him. But there is, Luke fired back. You're right, Bromir. Humankind can be selfish and short-sighted, but I don't think we should give up on the whole lot of them, especially when the dedication of a few selfless souls has given us a second chance. It may no longer be your duty, but I'm asking you to please help us anyway. And if we fail, I'll bet Asgard has better tobacco anyway. Seemingly unaffected, the dwarf silently studied the detective. And then, without warning, he erupted in a fit of hoarse guffaws. <laughs> I suppose you're right, Master Miller. He wheezed mid-chuckle. <laughs> In my book, nothing speaks better of a man than his humor in dark times. <laughs> and ain't none been darker than these times. <laughs> All right, my lord. I'll help you. What else do you need? Armor, Freya replied. A set for Luke and I, and any Vetia that heed our call. And, uh, how many would that be? The dwarf pressed, pulling a petite, leather-bound notebook and a stick of graphite from a pocket in his tunic. Um, well, we're not sure. Luke's tone grew gloomy. Probably not that many. As Bromir fired up his forge, Luke and Freya took flight to return to the grotto. As they cautiously cleared the tree line, they beheld the horrific scale of Dragoch's rapidly spreading destruction. Less than a mile away, what had been lush pine forest that morning was now scorched rock and ash. The only remnants of friendly ferrite's ill-fated facility was a twisted pile of smoldering rubble in the distance. Surrounding the ruined buildings lay the charred hulks of a battalion of tanks and missile launchers. The blackened bones of hundreds of soldiers lay scattered amid the ruined weaponry, grim remnants of another brave yet futile attempt to defeat the dragon with conventional armaments. 
far off in the distance, above this freshly hewn hellscape, Dragoch hovered, screeching and belching flames with delight, surrounded by a dark galaxy of skookums who circled the beast like Saturn's rings. So, this is what the end of the world looks like, Luke eulogized. And then they passed into the forest before a vulture rider could spot them. Seeing the dragon left Luke nearly despondent. Even if they could miraculously manage to kill Dragoch, they couldn't possibly do so in time to save civilization. However, as they came upon their destination, Luke was stunned to behold a group of big feet of all shapes, colors, and sizes trickling in from the forest and assembling in the grotto. As their owls landed, he and Freya were cheered by this legion. Hail, Luke Miller! Hail, Freya Vanitas! As Luke dismounted, he spotted Brona and shouted, What is all this? While you met with Bromir, she began, the twitter of Slender Branch's songbirds called Vettir volunteers to rally to our desperate cause. Dragoch's destruction is more dreadfully dire than even the most cynical Vatier can bear. A blonde Bigfoot with a big braided beard interjected. When word came that a brave human with magical machinations would make battle with him, <laughs> well, we came post-haste. I cannot speak for all here, but the Sigwif clan shall bear your banner unto our deaths. Hear, <laughs> hear! A little group of wiry, gray big feet cheered and beat their breasts with furry fists. How many have come? Freya inquired. Nearly a hundred so far, Brona answered, and more stream in every minute. The makings of a real army. Will Bromir arm it? He will, Luke replied, joyous tears running down his cheeks. Then, perhaps, Freya pronounced, almost misty-eyed herself, the earth has a chance after all. Well, folks, that's tonight's story. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed reading and recording it. Once again, you heard Detective Luke Miller and the Demonic Dragon by D. Zane Davis. Once again, I'm your host, Michael Strand, managing editor at Six Semper Serpent. Tonight's episode was authored by D. Zane Davis, and the publisher of this podcast is T. Martin Krause. The music tonight was provided by Kevin McLeod. Check out more of his stuff on the Free Music Archive. All right, my homies and senoritas, thank you for listening to yet another episode of the Everlasting Stories podcast. If you dig it, share it on social media, head on over to Patreon, check out the things that we have offered there. We're producing a ton of great content for you. And thank you 
to all of our subscribers. We literally couldn't do it without you. We will see you next time on the Everlasting Stories Podcast. Thank you.